Morning's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, which is on page 491 in the Church Bibles. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah and others, and on his left were Padiah and others. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua and others, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Thank you very much. Before we pray, uh, well, worship sounded great this morning. Really did. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures and we pray that you'd open them to us, that we might learn from them, be inspired by them. And we ask you to really give us a love for your word and a commitment to letting it influence our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In this little sermon series, we've been looking at different characters in the Old Testament. And today, we're going to focus on Ezra. And I'm giving it the title, Ezra, a man who influenced a generation. Considering his influence and importance, it seems to me that Ezra gets insufficient attention. And probably that's because for many of us, he's found in the crevices and cracks of the Old Testament. I'd be very surprised if many of us have heard many sermons on this guy, Ezra. But today, his time has come. And I think it's really a message. He is a person that we need to focus on because we need Ezra's. Now, giving it the title, Ezra, who influenced a generation, I want to start with a terribly basic point, which is this. The progress or the regress of God's kingdom is impacted by individuals. And the reason I make this point is that it's so easy to look around at everything that's going on in the world and the complexity and the enormity of all the challenges and think, how can I play any kind of a role in influencing what goes on in the future? You know, the war in Ukraine, 
uh, the worldwide movement of peoples, climate change, not to mention the economy, etc., etc. It would be so easy to just duck and run, think, what, what difference can I make? And, and yet, the story of the scriptures, time and time again, is that individuals do make an influence for good or for bad. And I can illustrate that easily. There is one verse that actually jumps out at me, it, it, Ezekiel 22, where God says, I looked for someone, I just looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I wouldn't have to destroy it. But I found no one. And sometimes it's put the other way around when God does find people. So he talks about Job as there's no one else like him or Noah, a man who was righteous amongst his generation. And sometimes these standout people are really quiet people. Sometimes they're not, they're really extrovert people. Sometimes they are standout because they're head and shoulders amongst their contemporaries. So we know that King David was like that. But others, you would have walked past nine times out of 10. And I have a feeling that Ezra is someone that you and I would have walked past nine times out of 10. And one of the reasons is that nine-tenths of his life is lived in obscurity. So there's Ezra tucked away, but I'm gonna begin our study from the high point, or at least the high visibility point of Ezra's life. If, if it was a biopic film made of Ezra, this would definitely be the climax of it. And it, it's the moment that was read out to us from the book of Nehemiah, and it, it's recorded in Nehemiah chapter eight, and it's recording an event that took place in September, October, 458 BC. And I call this event the Watergate Revival because what happens is that under the spirit of God, God's people all assemble voluntarily and because they want to be there in the market square. This is the climax of a book of Nehemiah. The walls have been rebuilt, the people are gathered together and there's something really very exciting and spine-tingling and obvious when God makes himself known like this. And there are many, many examples in scripture, say, say Moses and the burning bush, or Pentecost and 3,000 people come together, don't they? And why? Because it's the spirit of God drawing people, or the people flocking to hear John the Baptist in the wilderness. And we call these moves of God revivals. And, and understandably, they're enormously exciting, and um, I'd love to see another revival in our time. And, and in my lifetime, I've heard people talk about God's revival in places like Pensacola and Toronto and Mozambique and Asprey, and you probably heard of a few other places too. And what a revival is, what's going on in Nehemiah chapter eight, is a moment of high drama of instant activity. It's what happens when God reveals himself sovereignly to a community. But what happens next? That's a key question. What, what happens next? Will it all be a flash in the pan? So like in our day, would it just lead to a few extra tweets, a few posts on social media, a few thousands flocking to a particular venue for a short while, or could it lead to the transformation of a whole society? As some historians think that the Wesleyan and Whitfield revivals did, and they even go so far as to say, that's why we didn't have a revolution like the French Revolution in this country. 
what happens next, to a large extent, depends upon whether there are any Ezra's about. But before I go into that, let me just um, push the point for a moment. New births are exciting. I look around and I can see there are some new parents in this congregation. And um, they will tell you that the arrival of their child has had an impact on their family life for good <laughs> and forever. And, and it's very, very exciting. But any parent understands that birth is the beginning of something which is a long-term adventure. Spiritual new birth is equally exciting, but it is just the beginning. And the revival which, in which God touches lives for a moment, something else has to happen if it's going to be of enduring worth. And what I see, which is glorious about Ezra, is God not only brought revival and the revival encounter in Nehemiah chapter 8, he also brought the children of Israel, Ezra. Ezra traveled 900 miles. It took him over four months to get to Jerusalem. And when those people are gathered in the market square, Nehemiah calls out Ezra. And what does Ezra do? Ezra the scribe came out with the book of the law of Moses and he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. And he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of all the men, women and others, everyone who had understanding. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And it's thanks to Ezra's explanation that this touch of God shifts from being a transitory experience to a transformational one. It's through God's word. We're told in the scripture, and it is true to experience, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The psalmist asks the question, how can anyone keep their way pure? And gives the answer, by living according to your word. So he goes on to say, so I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or to swing into the New Testament, Paul writing to the Ephesians, talks to them and says, this is what God has done for you. And that's what the first few chapters of Ephesians are all about. And he says, you once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And I guess, you know, I look around this church and I know that's a message that you've heard before and you agree with. But this is the next challenge, Paul says. So find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And this is so challenging. This is so challenging. So once you know God, how are you and I going to get on the right page so that we live a life that pleases God? And it's challenging because left to your own devices, you simply won't do it. And I won't do it. You'll be walking around in a fog. And the reason for that is because God's ways and God's thoughts are not your ways or my ways are my thoughts. You can't guess accurately what God requires of you. He needs to tell us. And he does tell us through the scriptures. But the people then and the people now urgently need someone who can lead them into God's presence by teaching them through God's word. It was Ezra's lot to live in exile 
He lived amongst a foreign people in a foreign land. As you know, the children of Israel were exiled from their own country and they lived uh, far away. And little by little, one imagines that this is what happened. They just sold out to the crowd that were around them. They just assimilated into everything else that was going around. And the accumulated wisdom of ages got lost. It, it is rather strange that walking with God and knowing his ways is very like literacy. You cannot assume that the next generation will be literate. Someone has to sit down and go to all the trouble of explaining an alphabet and how to spell and how sentences are put together. If, that, if, that, if we didn't do that, you'd have an illiterate country in no time at all. So it is with God's ways. If someone doesn't sit us down and teach us God's ways from God's word, we will become a spiritually illiterate country. Just as is every sign that that's exactly what is going on. Now, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for watching uh, old-fashioned, out-of-date Second World War films. And uh, a, a, a standard device that happens in especially the black and white films is that to confuse the enemy in case there's an invasion, uh, all the road signs are turned, either taken down so they're obliterated so you can't see where you're going, or slightly better than that, they're reconfigured so they point in the wrong direction. And that's meant to confuse the enemy profoundly. Well, it's a bit like that for us today, trying to find our way into God's territory. All the road signs have been wrongly configured or distorted. Actually, rather cleverly, they haven't just been removed, they've been tampered with and the message has been muddled. So that actually, if you want to find your way into God's heart or to living a life that pleases him, you're going to have to work very, very hard at it because all the signposts around about you coming at you overtly through advertising and not overtly but subtly are leading you up the garden path into the wrong ways. And the encouraging news I've got for us is that we have exactly the same potential as Ezra did. We can lead people back into God's ways. Which takes me to the second point, or it possibly is the third, depending on your numbering system. What was the secret of Ezra's success on that day when he stood on his platform and spoke to the people? And I think this is his greatest moment, though it probably wouldn't even make it into a biopic film. The secret of his life is not when he's on his soapbox in front of a crowd, but when he's in his study on his own. If you make notes, and one or two of you do, I, I would note this verse, and I would go home and learn it, really. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, because this is the key to his life. And this is what it says. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. It's just worth pondering that for a bit because I think it's very heroic what he does. He, he, remember, he's living miles away from Jerusalem. He's in exile, led into captivity. And day by day, when no one else can see what he's up to, just him and God, I suppose, 
day by day, little by little, bit by bit, Ezra diligently studied the scriptures because he didn't have a New Testament. He's studying the Old Testament, probably the first five books of the Bible. How daunting is that? Well, if you're anything like me, and you are, it's extremely daunting. And here's some reasons why it's very daunting. Because anything you do in secret, you're tempted to give up. Because no one pats you on the back and says, well done, you read the scriptures today, you had a quiet time. Uh, You know that you could probably get away without having a quiet time for a while. Uh, You might think that I couldn't tell, but probably we could tell if we are living in reading scriptures or not. I once read uh, seven days without one's Bible makes one week. And it's true. (laughs) But anyway, not to get caught up in that. He did it in secret. Secret habits are hard to persevere with. But secondly, what makes it difficult is, or admirable is the way he went about it. He devoted himself, we're told. He devoted himself to the study and observance of the Lord. Now, I'll let you into a secret. One of the things that really frustrates me about being a pastor over many, many, many years is that not many people get this. It's often thought that we understand why if you want to succeed at sport, like, say, those tennis players, Alcaraz, Djokovic, we understand completely why they would change their diet, why they would change their sleeping habits, why they would spend hours and hours and hours hitting a a tennis ball backwards and forwards. We we, we get it. We, We understand completely why if you're a medic, you should practice over many, many years learning, 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 and it takes devotion. We understand it in every way possible. We understand why if you to be a, a fulfilling parent, it, it takes work and devotion. And you can't just do it when you feel like it and don't feel like it. But so often in the things of God, we just tack it on at the end of our lives and think, oh, casually, it'll all work out. It won't. You have to search for God and his ways with every bit as much diligence as the tennis player has to practice and the medic has to study, God expects us to expend energy and focus in finding him and keeping close to him. And this is what Ezra did. And there's another reason I find it very admirable is that he didn't know his time would come. You know, if you're training uh, to be a, a top tennis player, You might have Wimbledon in in your sights very early on. You know there's going to be a competition. If you're training in medicine, you know that you're working for the prize of actually putting into practice what you've done and making a difference to people's lives. There was no way that when Ezra decided to apply himself to God's word that he knew there would come a time where he would stand up in front of all the children of Israel and share his knowledge. Friends, I don't know if revival will come in our lifetime. But I do know that if revival comes, it's going to need Bible literate people, you and me. And even if revival doesn't come, your friends, the people living in your family, the people living in your street, the people who rub shoulders with you in your work, they will need to meet someone who can show them into God's ways into God's highways and byways. The chances are now they may well not have any living family member who prays. 
When I grew up, I didn't have a living family member who prayed. They may not have any living family member who reads the scriptures. When I grew up, I couldn't turn to my parents to ask them for help from the scriptures. But praise God, I could find people who had spent their time in prayer, who were knowledgeable about the scriptures. And you and I can be that resource to others and it will make a lifetime of difference to others. But it's going to be hard work and I see that Ezra worked really hard at it. Day after day, day after day. But he didn't just study God's word. He devoted himself to the study of God's word, yes. But if you read it carefully, he devoted himself to obeying God's word too. And this is the key. It is not that we should get compendious amounts of knowledge about every page of scripture. You know, get through the Bible in a year. No. It's that the Bible should get through us. That's the point. The key question every time you read the scripture is, so what? So what changes? So what changes now? And if nothing changes, you might just as well have not read the scriptures. I might have mentioned before that when Liz and I were setting out on this um, learning to be a pastor in a church, Malarkey, we were in Oxford and we ran a small group. And um, this group met, maybe it started in September, first couple of weeks went fine, and one of the members of the group didn't turn up <clears throat> for the next few weeks. And, and we had learned enough by that time to know that you don't chase people to come to your Bible study or your small group. If they want to come, they come. If they don't want to come, they don't come. You know, we're grown-ups, you treat people like grown-ups. But I was taken aback when this fellow came back about eight weeks later, having been absent, and um, there was, with no kind of apology of, you know, so sorry I haven't shown up for eight weeks, or, you know, have you missed me? None of that. You just joined and seemed to think it was all fine. And on the way out, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with him saying, well, we, we've missed you. I've forgotten his name now, but we, we, we missed you. Let's call him Robert. And he, he said, oh, well, I'll tell you why I haven't been with you. He said, um, I, I heard and learnt so much in the first two or three weeks that I was with you. I thought, till I've learnt to put this into practice in my life, there's not really much point coming back again. But now I've learnt to do what you were talking about eight weeks ago. I'm ready for some more. And I scratched my head and I thought, well, that's different. That, that's different. That makes a point. And, and it's true. What will change every time you read the scripture? Because, because God will speak to you. God will speak to you. And as well as asking yourself, so what? When God speaks, say yes, Lord. And it seems quite often the pattern goes like this. God will ask something very simple to start with and you'll have a choice. Pretty early on in Moses's walk with God, God asked him something incredibly simple. Don't come any closer, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Moses could have said, what are you talking about? I always keep my shoes on. I take them off at night, but now it's shoes on time. And but he didn't. He took off his shoes and he obeyed. Pretty early on, Peter finds Jesus saying to him, let down your nets for a catch. He could have said, you're bonkers. I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter. We fished all night, caught nothing. I've just mended the nets. 
on your bike, except they didn't have bikes. It, but it was a simple request and it needed him to say, yes, Lord. My experience is the first time God asked me to do something, it's nearly always a struggle. But when you say, yes, Lord, he's able to ask you the next thing and lead you closer to him. And that might be the first time he asks you to forgive someone. It might be the first time he asks you to follow him. It might be the first time he nudges you and says, I want you to talk to this person. It might be the first time he nudges you and says, I really don't want you to say that kind of thing anymore because that kind of talk isn't fitting for my people. Whatever it is, if God speaks to you, say yes, because then you'll discover the goodness of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And as I come to the close of what I want to say, I need to warn you something. If you live like this, like Ezra did, studying God's word, observing it, and living in the light of it, some things are going to change. A good thing that will happen for you is that God's favor will rest on you. Ezra discovered that. The book of Ezra descri describes what happens when God's hand is upon him and he's able to accomplish all sorts of things. That's a really good thing. But something else happens which is trickier. You will develop a passion for the honor of God's name. And you'll find that as you devote yourself to God's word and as the Holy Spirit brings God's word alive to you, you will see things more clearly in black and white. And this is not a recipe for a quiet life. It would really suit the world we live in right now were God's word to be more full of ambiguities, so riven with complexity that we couldn't make head or tail of it. But God's word and God's voice is not like that. It's crystal clear on some issues the world wishes it was murky about. You see, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He didn't say, my sheep hear my voice and they get really confused. Jesus said, I am the light of a world. Whoever follows me doesn't walk in darkness, but has the light of life. He did not say, I'm the twilight of a world. Whoever follows me travels in a permanent fog. As Ezra studied God's word, he became more and more certain what God required of him and the way of holiness. And the way of holiness is a very narrow road. The world thinks it's so stupid to go down that. It was no different in Jesus' time. Jesus said, broad is the road, many people on it, ends in destruction. Narrow is the road, few people on it, ends in eternal life. And what happens is Ezra, full of the spirit of God and the word of God, looks around his own generation. He's cut to the quick. He thinks God's name is being dragged through the mud. It's not our father, hallowed be thy name. It's our father to hell with your name. And he sits down and he rips his clothes and he pulls out his beard and he trembles and he's appalled, we read, because of everything that's going on. And he's ashamed and he feels disgraced so that he can't lift up his face to God. And I would say the more you know and love God, the more you'll care about the holiness of his people. If you don't care about the holiness of God's people, then I question whether you're worshipping a true God at all. And Ezra finds that he, he confesses 
the shortcomings of God's people and his own shortcomings. It's, this is difficult. This is painful. This is what happens as you process God's word and the spirit allows you to look around and see what's going on. But as a result of what happens in his life, people gather around him literally in the market square and they decide we've got to get back on track. This guy's right. There's a quality in his life which, which rings true. And we must do everything that's necessary to get back on speaking terms with God. So it caused a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. But actually, I don't want you to feel that that's the whole story. Because as the people turn back to God, the joy of the Lord becomes their strength. And Ezra and Nehemiah stand up together and they say, this is a day that's joyful to the Lord, so don't weep. Let's go home and celebrate together that we found God living and well and active amongst us. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we were to see a move of the Spirit of God in our day? Wouldn't it be amazing when people discover that Jesus' way is a way of life? And won't you be glad that you're familiar with God in all his ways when you can gather people around and just informally in, over coffee at Nero's or wherever it is that you meet, say, yes, this is, this is the life that God ordains for us. This is the life that will be the most fulfilling life you could ever lead. Let's pray.